0: So please let yourself sit in a way that's comfortable and at ease. Last week, for those of you who came on Monday night, we talked some about liberation. And enlightenment with a plural, enlightenments, the different forms or expressions of awakening that happen for us as human beings. And in particular, talked about it as a way of honoring the depth of the experience of our winter, spring, two-month retreat that just ended, the silent retreat for almost 100 people for two months, Um, and the kind of making a bridge between the experiences that were in the room of the um, retreat center and us sitting in there on Monday night. But I could also see and actually heard from some people that there's a way in which, well, that's kind of nice, but how is that relevant to my life? You know, as if it wasn't quite connected. Um, Maybe because of the emphasis at certain points in the talk on special experiences, That some people have it made it sound special you know dissolving oneself into light or ending of all greed hatred and delusion talking about nirvana and all of that so it it sounds somehow distant even though we do know it somewhere in ourselves so tonight I wanted to speak in a more ordinary way to reflect um, about liberation Um, And I'll begin with a kind of a story. Every month the disciple faithfully sent to his Master an account of his spiritual progress, having left the Master a year before. In the first month, he wrote, I feel an expansion of consciousness and experience my oneness with the universe. The Master glanced at the note and threw it away. The following month, this is what the disciple had to say, I have finally discovered that the Divine is present in all things. The Master seemed disappointed. In his third letter, the disciple enthusiastically explained, the mystery of the one and the many has been revealed to my wondering gaze. The Master yawned. In his next letter, several months later, the disciple wrote, No one is born, no one lives, and no one dies. The self is an illusion. The master threw his hands up in despair. After that, another month passed by, then three, then five, then a whole year. The master thought it was time to remind his disciple of his duty to keep him informed of his spiritual progress and send him a note. The disciple wrote back, Who cares what you think? (laughs) When the master read these words, a look of satisfaction spread over his face. Thank God he's got it at last. (laughs) One of my favorite stories or parts of the great of the myth of the Buddha is the first part of his enlightenment that took place sometime before he sat under the Bodhi tree in Bodhgaya. And this, in the story, took place after six years of yogic practice as an ascetic in which he had done all of the great ascetic practices that one finds in India of um, fasting almost to death, of um, being out in the heat or out in the cold or beds of nails or all those things. As he said, trying to beat his own body and mind into submission so that it would no longer in any way uh, experience desire or wanting or aversion for anything. And he was just about on his deathbed, so to speak, lying there uh, having exhausted this attempt to defeat himself when there came to him a memory of sitting in his father's garden as a young boy of seven years old during the spring planting time when the uh, rains have just stopped and everything is green, the spring plowing time, seated there under a rose apple tree and he remembered, as he as he saw himself again as this seven-year-old boy in his father's garden under the row that rose apple tree, that there had come to him all unbidden, with no effort from himself, a state of wholeness and stillness and unification, and oneness with all things, that was breathtaking. And in that realization, lying there after the six years of struggle, seeing the rose apple tree, re in his heart and memory, he awakened to the truth of the middle way and realized, oh, I've been going about this all the wrong way, I've been trying to fight against the world. And in that moment he began instead to practice not by struggling against his body or mind, but simply by resting with things as they are. He took nourishment, he was offered milk rice by this very um, um, wonderful um, maiden who came by and saw him and offered him the the milk rice, the milk of kindness, um, and got his strength back and eventually, as the myth goes on, sat underneath the, the Bodhi tree in the night of his enlightenment. But this was the first part of the enlightenment remember, seated under the rose apple tree, that awakening comes not by suppression or by fighting against ourselves, but rather by resting where we are, at peace with the world as it is. A quality of this myth or this story from the time of the Buddha is described by Zen Master Suzuki Roshi in his famous phrase, Beginner's Mind, that the goal of practice is always to keep our beginner's mind, or one could call it our original innocence, to sense that the mystery of life is not something out there that we will figure out, but is presenting itself to us in every moment right now, now and now and now. And in fact, Anybody who's even half-intelligent, which I spend a lot of time hanging around teenagers now and they're dubious about most of the adult population of the planet in that regard, but anybody with even a little bit of understanding, will realize that nobody knows what's going to happen next. (laughs) It's really phenomenal. I mean, we have some fairly good predictions. But actually, nobody knows, no one. Not even the good psychics, you know. You don't see them winning the lottery either, do you, really? <laughs> you look at it. Nobody knows. It is so mysterious. And part of the mystery, I brought in a, a little um, cutting from the apple tree in my backyard. and It's an apple tree that was there when we bought our house, and it has grafted onto it five different varieties of apples. I was looking at these incredibly beautiful apple blossoms. Does anybody know where apple blossoms come from? Well, apple seeds of course, right? But where does apple really come from? Where do trees come from? Where does earth and soil come from? Where does your mind that perceives it come from? Where does the sense of beauty that we know when we see an apple blossom, where does that come from? Anybody have an answer? Raise your hand. It's mysterious, and no one knows what will happen next. We live in a sea of mystery. What we do know is that it will continue to change, whatever it is. Joy and sorrow, praise and blame, gain and loss, birth and death, they are the play of this human life and consciousness. And yet, and yet in the midst of joy and sorrow and praise and blame and gain and loss, there is something that is eternal, timeless, eternally present, and sacred. Even in the worst, even in the slums, even in the wars, there are moments. I was speaking with someone who'd just come back from being in a, a war very recently and said, you know what astonished me? was not just the horror of the warfare, but the moments of beauty that were also there at the same time. It's like when you in your own life when someone that you really love dearly um, is died or is dying or there's some great tragedy and then you have to go to the grocery store and you're standing there and trying to figure out which kind of bread to buy this very prosaic thing or what kind of mayonnaise you're going which brand of mayonnaise And all these people are walking by with their carts, and you think, don't they know that this person is dying or this thing is happening? Um, It's so astonishing to us that the world contains both so close together. So this person who was just coming back from being in a place of war said, what amazed me was that the war was going on, and then here was a field of flowers, and I almost couldn't bear the beauty as well as the suffering. So what does a practice of wakefulness and compassion have to do with all of this? This from Rachel Carlson. A child's world is fresh and new and beautiful and full of wonder and excitement. It is our misfortune that for most of us that clear-eyed vision, the true instinct for beauty and awe, is dimmed or lost before we reach adulthood. If I had influence with the good fairy who presides over all children as they're young, I should ask that her gift to each child in this world would be a sense of wonder so indestructible it would last for a life. What does the practice of wakefulness and compassion have to do with this? Zen Master Suzuki Roshi put it this way. He said, you are perfect just the way you are. And you could also use a little improvement. (laughs) A cartoon from Calvin and Hobbes, but I need your help before I read it. Which one is Calvin? I never could figure out which one is Calvin and which one is Hobbes. is who, the tiger? Who, which one is the tiger? Oh. That's Hobbes. Okay, thank you. Okay, so Hobbes the tiger is looking at Calvin, who's out playing in the snow, making a snowman. Aren't you supposed to be doing homework now? Says Hobbes. Cat- little Calvin says, "I quit doing homework. Homework is bad for my self-esteem." <laughs> Now, you could substitute meditation in here. Meditation is bad for my (laughs) (laughs) self-esteem. It is, says Hobbes. Sure, it sends the message that I don't know enough or I'm not spiritual enough. All that emphasis on getting it right makes me feel bad when I get it wrong. So instead, I'm trying to learn. I'm just concentrating on liking myself the way I am. Then Hobbes throws his hands up in the air and looks at him and says you mean your self-esteem is enhanced by remaining an ignoramus (laughs) (laughs) and Calvin says please let's just call it informationally impaired (laughs) so that's their expression of this you're perfect just the way you are and you could also use a little improvement oh nobly born say, the Buddhist texts. Remember who you really are. In the beginning of the noble Eightfold Path is right understanding or wise understanding, which is that we can sense in ourselves often the potential, even though we are beautiful as we are, we can also sense the potential for greater compassion and for greater freedom within our own heart. The rose apple tree then resting under the rose apple tree in some sense is resting on the ground of our goodness a ground of acceptance of being where we are and yet at the same time there is a planting of seeds um, a natural response when we do rest under the rose apple tree and there's this sense of well-being that comes to us then what is the question And then what is that we feed the child who is hungry in front of us. We give medicine to someone who is sick. We plant the seeds of goodness because what else is there to do? We play at being a Buddha, if you will, which is called being a Bodhisattva. You pretend you're a Buddha for as long as you can and after a while you can't tell the difference. It's kind of the practice. So this winter in the first couple of months or more of the winter, my family and I, my wife Liana and daughter Caroline and I, went back to Asia and spent some sabbatical time in Thailand and in India. And I talked a little about Thailand last week and might talk a little more tonight. Um, but I want to speak a little bit about being back in India. Um, it was when India and Pakistan were threatening each other with nuclear weapons back in January, so we decided we'd planned to go out on a camel safari in the Rajasthani desert and stuff, but that was right on the Pakistani border where they just sent a half a million troops on, you know, both sides of the border. So we decided to skip that part of our trip. <laughs> and we went, primarily spent our time in Banaras, in Varanasi, um, where I'd been a number of times before. <laughs> And Benares is one of the oldest inhabited cities on the face of the earth. And it feels it. It's ancient, somehow eternal and timeless. And it was, as it has always been, dirty, noisy, crowded, um, you know, difficult in some ways. And at the same time, amazing and filled with grace and wondrous and beautiful. We spent a lot of time, early mornings and afternoons and evenings out on the Ganges River because Banaras is built right on the banks of the of the Ganges River and to go out on the Ganges River just as the sun rises and hear the people making their prayers and see all the yogis and sadhus on the banks or in the evening at the time of the um, fire pujas and and, uh, rituals and so forth. Really amazing. And my wife and I very much wanted to return to India partly out of a love for India although it actually gets a lot harder as you get older, I noticed. It's not so easy on your body. But also to show our daughter. We'd always said, when she's old enough, we really want to bring her to India. There's no place in the world like India, nowhere. So, And there's something remarkable about taking a child or a teen, as she is, to some place that you love, because then you get to see it through the eyes of the child. you get to have that beginner's mind as a kind of gift again. And India is such a deeply spiritual culture, it's just woven into everything. When you meet someone in India, unlike the U.S. where people ask, you know, what do you do, is kind of the first, one of the first questions. Nobody asks what do you do in India, partly because not many people do anything, <laughs> there is that. <laughs> it's more a country of being than doing. You know, nor do they even ask where you're from as the first question, which is what they ask in some places. They ask, the, one of the first questions is, what form of God do you worship? Is it Shiva or Brahma you know, or Krishna or Saraswati or Kali? Who is, what, what is your form of worship of the divine? Then they feel like they get to know a little bit who you are. What an amazing question to ask. You know, not where do you work. But what what form of God do you worship? What do you orient your heart and your life to? And every little taxi, you know, has this little altar on it, you know, and there's there's the incense and the the, the flowers. Even the poorest person, there's little altars and, you know, pujas and, and, and prayers. And in fact, Benares has 2,000 temples in it. Some of them are just tiny little temples with one person sitting by and taking care of the the temple that's not much bigger than they are, you know, some of the huge temples. So we got to India, we actually arrived, we flew from Thailand and ended up flying into um, Banaras at night. Or we got there, um, we were supposed to get in there in the afternoon, but you know how it is flying through <laughs> India. Anyway, plane was laid and we were trying to change planes in Kathmandu. but. They didn't know that there was such a thing as transit in Kathmandu and these guys with old World War I rifles took us down to the basement of the airport. and you know, the whole thing took four or five hours. But anyway, we got to India. That's part of getting to India. This, <laughs> is, this is how it works in India. <laughs> and we arrived and it was a bit dark and we went to this nice hotel that we were staying in. And I said to my daughter, Well, after we had our dinner, do you want to go out and just see India a tiny bit tonight since we're here? She said, Sure, Dad. And we were a little ways away from the Ganges. And kind of away from where tourists might be in this one hotel. So we went out of the gates of the grounds of the hotel and immediately we were besieged upon, if you will, like almost attacked, by about 30 men who said, ride my rickshaw, Sahib, or come to my shop and grabbing me and so forth. And my daughter, who was wearing a sweater and blue jeans and was about a foot or two away from me as we were sauntering out the driveway, kind of leapt on me and grabbed because there were all these guys pulling at us. Dad, what do we do? I said, nothing, it's okay. Uh, we'll take that rickshaw. So we got in the rickshaw um, and we started riding through the streets a little bit and she said, where are the women? Because it was evening and there were these little fires and there were men doing things and so forth. And once in a while you'd see a couple of women going somewhere in, a, in one of the rickshaws, but mostly there weren't women out on the streets at night. Um, and everyone was staring at her because she's pretty pale-skinned and was clearly in you know, a blue jeans. She was clearly a, a foreigner. So we stopped in one of the first shops that had uh, Indian shawls and things, and got a got a couple of Indian shawls, shmatas, and and um, <laughs> you know she put it over her head like this, and you know and kind of hid underneath it. And uh, and then we could kind of ride around, and I look Indian enough, it doesn't matter, really, you know, and we could ride around and look at, and she, her eyes are just wide, because it's medieval. The beautiful thing about being in Benares is that it hasn't changed for a thousand or two thousand years. The little alleys and lanes and the quality, it is really back in a different age, and quite magical in that regard. But because she was also um, having to study while we were traveling, writing, papers for high school since she was away for some months in her social justice class which her high school requires you take in junior year she was writing about the role and the place of women in in Asia in different countries and one of the things she wrote about was what it was like to be a young woman she's now 17 and a half going on 18 in the streets of different countries and in India she felt like she wasn't safe unless there was a man along with her certainly not at night But even in the daytime, really, she wanted someone. Then when we were in Nepal, which, especially in Kathmandu, which is... um, India has this combination of Muslim and Hindu culture, primarily, and there's a strong kind of ethic that women are not to be so visible. Um, In Nepal, um, which is... Kathmandu Valley is much more modernized. She was more comfortable. She wore a sari part of the time, but she also wore her blue jeans, and people didn't look at her very much. She felt freer. And then when we were in Thailand as a, a as a woman in this um, much more kind of tropical, gracious Buddhist culture, um, she felt very free just to be herself and not be worried or not be hassled by men on the street. And so she wrote about all of this stuff. But this isn't the end of the story. We'll tell you more as we go along because it's not really quite that simple. Anyway, we went to various temples, wonderful and amazing temples, and we went to Mother Teresa's, because my daughter was really interested in that, and my daughter sp- has uh, learned sign language, so we went to the one of the schools for deaf children. Mm-hmm. and It was fantastic to spend the morning there and have her speaking as best she could with these deaf children in India in sign, and they were so enamored of this American girl who came to spend part of the day with them. Um, the person that we spent the most time with in, um, in around Benares, and we were in Sarnath, where the Deer Park is, where the Buddha began his teachings, but in Benares, was the Mahant of the second most important temple in Benares, uh, the Tulsi Das temple, the Mahant of Tulsi And The Mahant is a combination of kind of the abbot and the kind of spiritual leader and also a holy man um, and also a little bit like a Maharaja and it's been in his family for hundreds and hundreds of years. And he's the most gracious gentleman, very well-spoken and well-educated, silver-haired, deeply spiritual, but also he's a scientist. He's educated as an engineer, and he's involved in a project together with some people from the U.S. and Europe, um, to clean up the Ganges River, and to clean up the rivers of India. And he had this amazing laboratory that was set up by this, uh, partly by uh, money from Sweden, to measure the um, amount of uh, pollution in the Ganges River and in other rivers in India. And, and um, we spent time with him. The Mahant family has had boatmen for hundreds of years, and so he called his boatmen and they took us out on the river. And it was, it was really a kind of an education about both the difficulties of population growth and modernization in old India and also the movement of people to reclaim and care for the things that are most most sacred to them. And so we went up and down the river and then the Mahant gave, my daughter and I and my wife, gave us a, a kind of talk or a lecture about what he was trying to do. And he sat down and he said, you have to understand that for me, this river is my mother. She is my life. She pours down from the Himalayas and she's the mother of all of us who live in North India. And I, I am not a happy human being unless every day I can go and bathe in her waters because she she brings water to our villages. She makes the rice and the wheat that we eat grow. She And he just went on about the blessings and she said, she is the water in my veins. And this beautiful um, kind of talk about interdependence and the land we live on and the air we breathe and how it is all sacred. Um, and then he said, but of course we in India believe, we believe that she, that mother is pure, so it is very hard to talk to people about cleaning her up. Um, and I have to go in the most delicate way and say, yes, our mother is pure, but what are we feeding her? And he'd been gathering the heads of temples across India along the Ganges and Fran Peavy, who works uh, with him, had been gathering the women in the communities along the river. The students, there were these boats that would pull up to us with a great big flag that they were flying, (laughs) www.cleanganges.com on it, and all these students who were cleaning up the riverbanks, and it was really quite fantastic to see. And a lot of it, what they're doing, as in this country, is through lawsuits, (laughs) through challenging environmental laws, by measuring What's not working in the river that the c- government claims is, and challenging the whole way that the um, uh, Indian ecological system in the river banks is uh, visioned uh, by the government. So it was it was really kind of remarkable. But also along the river are people bathing and people drinking the water and people throwing in refuge and bodies from people that are floating down and and the burning gods. And I took my daughter to the. Mahakarnika, the, the main burning gods in Banaras, um, where about every 20 minutes during the day there is a palaquin made of bamboo and a body on it that's carried in by p- people who chant, Ram Nam Satya he. the only truth is the name of God. And they carry it down the ancient little streets down to the river Ganges and dunk the body in the water of the holy Ganges and then place it on a funeral pyre. And my daughter had never seen a dead body before you know it's sometimes it's around that age in this culture where you first get to depending on the circumstances of your life and it's kind of amazing that that would be the place that you would first see a human being who had died a corpse um, and there was a sense in it not of tragedy but of utter ordinariness there is birth and there is death And every 20 minutes another body would come and it's the holy place to be cremated. And people would chant again and it would be placed onto the fire. Um, And behind where all the fire pits are along the Ganges, there's the old um, temple of Mahakarnika Ghats. And at night when we took a rowboat out on the river by there, you could see not only the burning of the Ghats of people being cremated, but inside you could see the fire the holy fire that's in the center of the temple that our boatman at least said had not gone out for two thousand years it was tended um, by uh, the pujaris of that particular temple and almost next door right nearby there was a kind of palace there are a lot of palaces of various maharajas along the ganges river but there was a palace of the Raja. the Raja is the king of the untouchables, the king of the lowest caste who work with dead bodies and with uh, leather and things like that. But they also have a king. And he had this great palace with um, these uh, kind of uh, statues of tigers all around it and so forth. And he was the king of those who tend this um, burning gods for the last 2,000 years or more. It was so ancient. It was kind of amazing to look at this through the eyes of innocence of my daughter. But it wasn't just, you know, what happens to her as a woman on the streets, um, the kind of way that um, she felt uh, stared at or people grabbing once in a while and so forth. Because when we visited certain Indian families, she began to see as well the deep reverence for the feminine in India and the reverence for the women in the families. And then we went and visited different temples. We went to the great Durga temple there, and there was a Kali temple that we went to, and all these temples that acknowledge the divine feminine. Um, And then we learned about um, Fran Peavy and Mahanchi organizing the women of Benares to help, you know, with the project of caring for the rivers. Um, And she began to see that even though there were some ways in which it was difficult as a woman in India, that needed to be tended to there are other ways in which there was such a deep reverence for the connectedness and the nurturance that is the sacred feminine. We went to one village when we were going along the, along the Ganges that was near a sewage treatment plant it was part of studying what the the cleanup of the Ganges campaign was doing in a, in a dump there and we were in this beautiful old Indian village and in the background, you could see the sewage treatment plant that wasn't working terribly well. Um, but there were these these beautiful um, clay um, uh, homes that were made and gardens that were laid out underneath, you know, the shadow of the sewage treatment plant. And then there in the courtyard of one of the first houses we en- went to was a woman dressed in a sari with a baby that was maybe three months old in her lap and a, and a bowl of warm oil of some kind, some vegetable oil. And she was doing this beautiful Indian baby massage that I'd seen on videos from um, many, many years ago, but had never seen a person. And there she was, um, and the baby was just lying back there, flopped with this big smile on its face, and she was kind of pulling out each leg and arm with the oil and kind of massaging it and stroking. The baby was just in absolute bliss, and she was sitting on the ground with the silk of her sari, this beautiful red sari, around on the earth and this baby there and you just felt like it was something that was beautiful and sacred in an old world that we don't see so much anymore. It wasn't a baby in an incubator, it wasn't in a baby in daycare, it was really the, the, the bond of mother and child. Now um, just to give you a sense of that, um, s- not just the feminine but the ancient masculine This is a a passage from Stephen Mitchell's new book on Jesus where he writes about having gone back to Israel looking for inspiration about how he might write on the life of Jesus. And he said, I went to where the Sermon of the Mount was supposed to be given and there was just a garish modern church there and I didn't know where to find what I was looking for. But then he went down to spend some days and crossed over into Egypt into the Sinai Desert. and as he w- went into the desert, um, they met uh, Musa, who was a Bedouin guide that took him and another Israeli friend out through the mountains of the Sinai, where Moses had supposedly been. And, and uh, Musa was dressed in the kafia and an old, you know, kind of tattered robe and um, uh, took them up into the mountains. And the first time he said, Musa, stop to pray and Muslims, devout Muslims pray five times a day toward Mecca, bowing to the ground with your whole body. I noticed something in his bowing that made me catch my breath. The quality of surrender was extraordinary. It seemed to flow from the inside out through his toes and fingertips. The purity of his prayer was so visible I wanted to get down and pray with him, but I thought it would freak out my Israeli friend. <laughs> so I did it in my mind. And then we went climbing in the mountains and late in the day we went to wadi jabal a granite valley where musa took us to his garden it was astonishingly lush apple trees apricots figs almonds grapes olives pomegranates quince plums wild peaches and after a few minutes his five children entered they were dressed in dirty torn clothing but their faces were beautiful and i was astonished i felt as if i was in the presence of an ancient father king through whom all the gifts of the earth were being bestowed on his children. He was a huge presence for them, pure generosity, creativity and blessings that makes, makes the shining of the face in his children. The reverence these children showed their father was an emotion I'd never seen in Western children, but it didn't exclude affection and humor and playfulness. And I thought, oh, this is what Jesus meant by Abba, by Father. So these are just stories of that ancient feminine and and masculine, that's so holy. The Kingdom of God, that which is sacred, is here, it is no place else. We live in a place of incredible abundance. I was reading the figs and the quince, you know, and the pomegranates and so forth. Look around where you live in the Bay Area. The beauty is in- unbelievable. But some days the abundance is there outwardly, but it's not in our hearts. Yet as human beings, we all have the raw material to find liberation, to find freedom of heart. Some days it doesn't feel like it. We're lost in loneliness and fear and isolation, you know. And it's amazing, I've seen more joy on the faces of refugees in the Tibetan refugee camps who have nothing and have lost everything than I do sometimes when I go to the supermarket or drive on our highways. Because what matters is not what we have or not what we get, but how much we love, how much we can give, how much we can bless. Suzuki Roshi's Zen Master says, when you sit in meditation, you share your problems with the Buddha. The Buddha comes and brings problems, you know, and, and sits with you. And even though you feel you have too many problems, when you trust in Buddha, you learn to sit with the problems. At the same time, you should be ready to refuse a problem if it is really too much. Buddha may say, well, if you really don't need it, I'll accept it back, give it back to me. Mm-hmm. But more and more, if you look, the problems will change into something you need. That will seem difficult, and then you'll think, if I turn down this problem, if I refuse this problem, I may regret it. Since I'm not so sure whether this is a real problem, or Buddha's help for me, so that I may learn compassion, maybe I better keep it. Mm -hmm. And if you sit in this way, you find that your very problems are the treasures that will awaken you. In Thailand, we visited teachers and temples and so forth, but one of the most beautiful experiences there, I was on the beach in this um, part of southern Thailand that we were staying, and one day an old man who lived there called me over, and because uh, he saw me speaking in Thai to a lot of the people in the village there. He said, "You, I've seen you in this village before. I said, oh yeah, we came on sabbatical five years ago and ten years ago. I know a lot of people in the village. We had this long conversation. And he, I said, how do you like it? It's changing now. It's becoming more touristy. There's restaurants where there weren't before. There's people coming. He said, oh, that doesn't matter to me. He said, I gave all my stuff away long ago. I said, what? Just, uh, or, oh, or something like that. He said, yeah, you know, I owned a lot of what, uh, this part of the village. He said i gave all that land over to the temple gee it was such a pleasure to give to the temple now look what they do with it and i gave my children all day everybody has a a piece of land over there and then i gave some for the communal park that's in that direction he looked at me and he said if you try to hold on to things your life is so much suffering but if you know how to give things away you can be so happy do you understand he asked me it's like i'm getting this dharma talk from this old guy (laughs) on the beach so simple. This is what we can do. Sit under our rose apple tree with our joys and our suffering. You have your measure of sorrows and your measure of beauty. And plant seeds that are beautiful no matter what. Less greed, less grasping, less hatred, more love. Those are the seeds. Over and over again. In uh, Japan, says Suzuki Roshi, there are stories about people awakening suddenly like this. Now, you may think awakening is sudden, but actually it's the result of years and years of practice and failing many times. They don't write down those part of the stories. (laughs) Hitting the mark is the result of 99 failures, said one Zen archer. The last arrow hit the mark, but only after 99 others did not. So failure is actually your practice. Zen Master Suzuki Roshi every time you shoot shoot with confidence then you are sure to hit the mark which isn't really the mark there but it's the fact that you are aiming yourself in the right direction that you are planting the seeds that you care about. One of the beautiful qualities of my teacher Ajahn Chah was the way he empowered people. By the time he died from one little forest monastery his network of followers and disciples had grown to a hundred or a hundred fifty or two hundred monasteries. And the way that happened is that he saw among the people who came to practice with him, he saw something beautiful in them. And he would say, You, yeah, or you over there, you've been sitting enough. Go and start a monastery, become the abbot or the abbess of it and, and see how it goes. I see that you understand. You can do it. And then he would send them out and he really trusted people. He looked at them, and underneath everything that, you know, the personality and their own doubts and so forth, he saw underneath that this one who knows, this place of the wisdom heart, and then that's who he spoke to, that's who he looked at. It was really wonderful to see how he blessed people. I've learned in a much more limited way to do this in, for example, the teacher training program that I run every four or five years, we have a group of a half dozen people that learn to become retreat teachers, mostly people who practiced for years and years, and who um, I see in them this seed of potential. And they begin to teach, they come to retreats, you know, and they get up there and they give a Dharma talk, and they're awkward, and they make mistakes, and they feel foolish, you know and they keep looking over to see what I'm thinking, right? (laughs) And they feel like they're being judged by everybody, especially the other teachers, right? But also by everybody else. And then I think, well, who's really judging them? You know who's really judging them, of course, which is themselves. Because most of the time I see them as having beautiful things that just want to come out. And sure, they don't come out in a polished way to start with. I mean, they don't always come out with a polished way to end with either. And that's the way that it goes. But there's something so beautiful about seeing that in them rather than their mistakes or their awkwardness or their doubts or their tentativeness. To pay attention with a sacred presence and mindfulness is to let go of judgments, to see, to relax about things, to, to trust, to see the beauty that can come out. Another story, very brief. One um, very uh, busy young woman showed great signs of stress and strain, and upon visiting her doctor he prescribed a tranquilizer and asked her to report to him if that helped her after several weeks. When she came back he asked her if she felt any different. She said, no I don't, but I've observed that other people seem a lot different. judging whom in this game anyway and where does the real source of our troubles lie when we can be where we are with compassion we can transform this world do not think that the seed of Buddha nature is not within you because it is the eternal the sacred is here in each one of us in any moment the shift of perspective nobly born remember who you are remember your own true nature and in a moment you can look with the eyes of the beloved the eyes of mercy at another being it's not about doing something right to get enlightened in the future that's wrong be awake now be enlightened to this present moment so really what we're talking about is this shift from the small sense of self this body of fear that we get caught in we all do and then there's that moment where you say boy I was really caught in that anger or that story or that conflict or that problem wasn't I or that hurt or sadness and then oh yeah but is that who you really are in the two-month retreat that just finished I remember a series of interviews with people would come in every couple days and talk (coughs) to them about their meditation there was a person who came in who'd been, uh, several years ago, going um, worked, lived for three and a half years in Kosovo and in the former Yugoslavia, and been through um, terrible um, uh, circumstances of the war over there. Um, and then there was another person, a, a Latino man who came in, who was just telling me the memories were coming back of the racism that happened to him as a young man where he was taunted and caught and beaten and suffered in all these ways. And both these people, the person from the war and the person from the racism wars in this country, it was held in their bodies. And as they got quieter, all the tension and the grief and the pain and the anger and all that was right in there. And I said, well, feel it, sing it, grieve it, write it, whatever you need to do, let it be known, let it be... uh, vowed to, let yourself actually experience it. You don't have to get rid of it. And they did in their different ways over the course of their practice. And then at some point when the moment was right and they came in and they said, oh, it's so much grief or so much anger, so much pain, and here we are and we'd be looking at each other and I'd, I'd look at the right moment and I'd say, well, is that who you are? Is this who you are, the grief, the rage, the pain? Is that who you are? And it became so clear in that moment. That's a part of our experience, part of the body of fear, but it's not. it doesn't even touch who we really are. Or a woman who came in who was doubting and questioning. She'd done every kind of practice, Hindu practice, Buddhist practice, Christian mystical practice, over years and years. And she was somebody whose nature was to doubt and be confused and. She, she was really actually a very beautiful spirit and a wise person. And, and, but underneath was a sense of unworthiness. And I have to figure it out. Um, go from one thing to another and teach her to another. And at one point I looked at her and I said, you know, haven't you done this long enough? I mean, it's been 20 years of all these different spiritual teachings. I said, you know what, you have it, you are it. And I got down and I bowed to her feet. I did three bows. She was kind of like, oh, look at that. <laughs> And I looked at her, I said, you know, that's not who you are, all that stuff, you know that, don't you? And she nodded a little bit, like little tears coming down. Of course I know that's not who I am. I said, and it's okay, you can come in and, you know, we can play act this if you want. A little more, you don't know, and I'll pretend I'm the one who knows, you know. (laughs) But come on. My teenage daughter, when we were in Thailand, um, we talked to the headmaster of the school there, or the, the 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 teacher, who was the head of the village school one day, who we'd known from other visits in Thailand, and um, he asked her, he said, oh, you've gotten so much bigger, do you want to help come teach English at the school? So she said, sure, she likes working with little kids. So I took her down and translated a little bit, and then the next day she got dressed up. She thought she'd go and assist them as a in the English classes and she got to the school and they said, Well, here are your classes. And they just kind of made her a teacher for two months. And she had to write her own curriculum because she doesn't read Thai and do this whole thing. And she loved it and she, had, she taught third, fourth, fifth grade. Every day she would go and it was really wonderful. And when we were sort of toward the end of our visit and we were getting ready to come back to, to high school, she said to me, Dad, I don't think I want to go back and be an American teenager again. <laughs> That's an amazing thing to say. So now we're back home, and she is, right? (laughs) And she's beautiful, I admire her, she's a wise soul, she's caring and so forth. But she's also a teenager, you know, driving around in conflicts with her friends, with her parents, right? I want to do this, and I want to do that, and then X, Y, and Z, whatever it is, and then we have our little conflicts and she'll slam the door and get angry and uh, so forth, you know? And um, as a parent, I set certain limits. This is okay, and you cannot do that. And certain, and it's like we have our roles, all right? You're going to be an American teenager. I got to be an American dad, right? (laughs) And in my mind, I'm going. You're doing the teenager thing really well. I don't know what she's (laughs) thinking, (laughs) you know. But that's really how it is, you know. At the end of the two-month retreat, we did the pavarn. The pavarana forgiveness ceremony that's part of the monastery monastic practice in which we got down from where we were seated on these um, platforms in front and got down on the floor in the same level with everyone else who'd been sitting Um, and then we said we're stepping out of the role of teacher because we were in that role for a while it was given to us just it was as it was given to you to be in the role of student Um, but now that the practice period is over As is traditional, the abbot will get down after a practice period and the elders, and we all sit together in a circle as human beings, not in those roles. And then we asked, if there are any ways, knowingly or unknowingly, that we've caused harm or suffering to you, we ask your forgiveness. We did the best we could. And we bowed to them. And then they, again, extended their forgiveness to us. And it was a very moving thing just to step out of the role. Because it's just a role, it's not really who we are. I mean, I was off in Thailand for a couple or a few months in India and coming back and saying, Oh, it's time to teach, that's weird. You know, Oh, to get up there and talk about something. I mean, and I sort of forgot how to do it. I mean, it's not very hard once I start again because it's a <laughs> habit, right? But um, it's just a role. There is a mystery to this life that's so much bigger than the roles that we play. And we need to honor the roles and the individual and the wholeness that we are a part of. Our freedom and our happiness doesn't come by planning or making ourselves better or by some, you know, religious belief, but by our willingness and capacity to be present, to show up for life as it is in front of us. As Suzuki Roshi said, you can't make a date with enlightenment. It's either now or never. There is a natural compassion when we are really present. And I think of the way Saint Master Suzuki Roshi, I was reading about, he would always drink a cup of tea with two hands. It was like nothing was done, you know, talking on the cell phone and driving at the same time. It was like when you drink a cup of tea, really feel the warmth of the cup and let it touch your lips and feel the water you know, the warm water of the tea going down from the G- Mother Ganges River to nourish your body in that way. Or when you do, do sumi painting, you know, that calligraphy where you have a rice paper, so there's no mistake at all. You're the, and you dip your brush in the ink. And it's not to m- paint this great big huge scene with mountains and flowers and animals and temples and so forth. It's one leaf, you know, and one blossom, And you do that with such full attention that that one blossom is every blossom. That that one leaf carries every leaf. This is what we have in this life, to come to each moment with our full compassion. And I believe that we cannot look honestly and honorably with our eyes and heart open without compassion arising. As Thomas Merton puts it, Then it was as if I suddenly saw the secret beauty of their hearts, the depths of their hearts, the core of their reality, um, where neither sin nor desire or knowledge can touch the person that each one is in the eyes of the divine. If only they could see themselves as they really are, if only we could see each other that way, there would be no more need for war or hatred or greed or cruelty. I suppose the big problem would be that we would fall down and worship each other. Now before I end tonight, I have to say something else that's tangential and yet essential. And that is I want to say a little bit about the trauma that's happening in the Middle East and the war between the Israelis and the Palestinians. It's so painful to see and so painful to learn about. Um, And I don't have a television, so I learn about it by listening to the radio or reading in the newspapers. But it's terrible to watch and it's tremendously sad. Um, And I'm seeing the Israeli military and the Israeli government and a number of the fundamentalists who are there and racists um, who set up the settlements in the West Bank and Gaza and so forth And I see the Palestinians in their response um, seeking military solutions, thinking that by killing one another they will solve the problem. And as a person of Jewish background in particular, I'm really ashamed of what I see. Um, And I see it as a repetition of unhealed trauma. That is, people, human beings who have been traumatized, who are then, as we know, acting it out in the next generation. That's what I see. Um, and it's terrible. And for the Palestinians, I also see a level of trauma that they have carried and enact, and of being disenfranchised. And I looked, I read this Newsweek article that had the faces of the young suicide bombers, of these young women and young men in it. Um, and it was just almost too much look at um, because what I see was both desperation and also an incredible need to find dignity in this terrible situation. But what's really happening is that the children, the Israeli children and even more the Palestinian children, are being asked to carry the weight of the suffering that the adults are unwilling to carry. That the weight of the suffering that the adults need to eat and digest because only the adults can do it, to be willing to say, I have suffered and you have suffered and the suffering will stop with me, I will let it go, I will accept my measure of suffering. That unwillingness by the elders to do so places the burden of suffering on the youth. And, and The Israeli leadership is terrible in many ways, horrible. And the Palestinians have not always had good leadership either. Um, So I have to say it. And because it's just not right. I also want to add that I heard on the radio today, just in case you wonder what it's really about beside all of this, that a major consortium of oil companies just announced today that they're planning to build a large pipeline through Afghanistan surprise right what is happening in the Middle East as well in the Israeli Palestinian conflict and so forth is a lot not about what you think it is but it's about oil and it's about power and it's about money just to be straight about that now there is another way there is another way as the Buddha said hatred never ceases by hatred never ends that way, but by love alone is healed. This is the ancient and eternal law. And I know some people in the beleaguered peace movement in Israel and in Palestine who remember that this isn't who we really are and they're doing what they can, you know. Because when we forget whether it's the Hutus and the Tutsis or the Protestants and the Catholics (coughs) in Northern Ireland There's a kind of old myth, an old story that violence and vengeance will make us safe. And there's a different possibility because if we look at the myth that's being enacted right now, the visible myth that is enacted is the tanks surrounding the Church of the Nativity going back to the image of the rose apple tree, of sitting in your father's garden, or in your mother's garden, of that blessed innocence of the earth. What we see is the Church of the Nativity, which represents the birth of innocence surrounded by tanks. It is what you might call a poverty of the imagination to think that this is what's going to solve this. Yes, the U.S. and other nations need to step in and guarantee Israel security. Israel deserves to be secure. And yes, the Palestinians deserve their territory and their country and all those stupid settlements should be withdrawn from. And the Palestinians deserve their dignity. And like the Buddha in the old stories who sat, he actually tried to broker peace between nations when he could. And when he couldn't, he sat and did compassion practice for the wars that ravaged countries in the places where he lived. Sometimes he tried to stop them successfully, sometimes he was not successful. In the same way, we must do what we can and also sometimes we can't do enough, but we still have to try, whether it's to stand with the women in black or the people in black or to speak up or to remind people that this is not a policy that is good for any living creature. This is our world, our human world, and so we must live in it, this human world, as the Buddha found a way to live in it. But in our wisdom heart, in our heart of hearts, we know there is another way, a way of dignity, a way of freedom, a way of compassion, and a way of beauty. And this path of practice is not about being a good person but about discovering that true freedom of heart wherever you are, no matter what is happening. To live, to plant your seeds of goodness from what you know to be true and to bless those around you. So let's sit for a moment. And may you live in the most honorable and whole and compassionate and wise way true to your heart in this week and these times ahead.